This podcast was produced on the land of the Jar Jar Wurrung and Kulin Nation and recorded on Kulin land. We acknowledge the Jara and Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And as horrendous as the pandemic was for so many reasons, like it was history and it was quite significant. I remember a reporter turned around to me who was at 9-11 in New York and he was like, you will be telling your grandchildren about this in the way that I'm going to tell my grandchildren about being in New York on 9-11. And I was like, what are you talking about? But he's right. Like it was quite significant. listening to the state of the fourth estate where we get to know the people behind the news discuss the state of the industry and what it takes to be a journalist i'm taylor oates and i'm sarah mishra and here to discuss the state of the fourth estate with us rachel ward who is a journalist for australian associated press welcome thank you so much for having me Thank you for joining us today. So start off by telling us, how did you get started? That is a big question. How did I get started? The first piece of journalism I ever had published, I was actually in high school. I wrote an opinion piece for The Age. What was I upset about? I was upset that they were going to cut my favourite subject, which was Australian history. So I wrote an op-ed and it got published. And I have, to this day, I have no idea what possessed me to write the op-ed but I think I was so passionate about something and I felt like the voices of students were missing in that debate at that time. That's how I started (laughs) but I went on to do a journalism degree. I started at La Trobe. I didn't get the ATAR for my preferred course which was RMIT. After a year I switched and then yeah I started working at ABC Radio in Ballarat, then 7 in Melbourne and now at AAP and there was a lot of community radio along the way. Amazing. So you've really gone across like the big three of journalism. What have you learned working across those different mediums? I think that the biggest lesson I've learned is you need to tailor what you're doing. So newspaper stories often do not translate to television, no matter how worthy they are, or if they are super worthy, you have to find an innovative way of telling that story. Same with radio, I think. I actually think radio is probably the best medium for storytelling because you get the excitement of using live recordings but not the pressure of having to visually tell the story at the same time but that said with print it's so I suppose freeing to be able to get into stories you wouldn't be able to tell in other mediums. When it comes to print versus say broadcast do you find that there was a real like difference between the studio and the newsroom? Yeah when I was at seven in Melbourne it's a giant newsroom I don't know have either of you been in there? I think so, yeah. So it's it's set up like a spaceship. There's like (laughs) the chief of staff at the top in the middle and then there's the producers and the reporters who kind of fan out and then the editors, graphics, the studio. It's giant. On any given day, like skeleton staff is probably 50 people just in the Melbourne newsroom. And then I went to AAP and occasionally you're the only person on that day particularly if it's a weekend. So that was a bit of a shock. And I suppose the resources, like at seven, we had access to a chopper that was shared with nine. (laughs) And there is no greater feeling than having the intercom and speaking with the chopper pilot, trying to find, I don't know if it's like 
like a whale in the middle of Port Phillip Bay or capturing bushfire vision in country Victoria. Like, that is a great feeling. That's very cool. It's very cool. <laughs> and then at AAP, far fewer resources. So that was a bit, bit of a shock at the start, but you can do less with more, definitely. Absolutely. And I think a really great example of that is some of the work that you've done at AAP. So in October of 2022, several flood warnings were issued across regional Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland. Reporting on the scene in Echuca, you experienced and heard those stories firsthand. Hackenham Street, Echuca, wrong side of the wall. That's how Julie College describes her home of three years as she and her husband Marty wait for it to be inundated with flood water. Emergency services have built a makeshift flood levee out of dirt more than two kilometres long in the middle of several residential streets to prevent the worst of the floodwaters gushing into the main area of the Riverina town. Residents on the wrong side will likely bear the brunt of the water when the banks of the Murray spill later in the week and can only leave their street if they climb over the dirt wall reaching two metres in some parts. You were working in a crisis zone at the time. You were there on scene and I'm assuming it's chaos. In midst of all that, when you arrive on scene in Echuca, how do you find people to talk to? How do you find a source who's willing to talk to you for a story? Yeah, there's a few things that you've got to consider. One is that these people are in a crisis. Their town is about to be inundated. You don't want to interrupt that. I remember when we arrived in Echuca, there was a group of young men who were building a flood levee near the Maccas, which was like predicted to be like inundated, like nothing the town had seen before. And I went up to them and I was like, hi, I'm a journalist from Australian Associated Press, just wanting to give a bit more clarity about the situation. Can you speak to me? And he was like, I, I just don't have time. And you're like, Fair enough. Asking nicely often gets you a long way. I did the same thing with another guy who was sandbagging a hotel. I didn't realise he was the owner. He was super stressed. He has about, I think, five or six businesses in the main part of town. But he was really happy to speak to me. So sometimes it's a bit of luck and not taking it personally. We went from Shepparton to Echuca, which is usually not that far. I think it's an hour or two. But because so many of the roads were closed, we went all the way down to Nagambi, mm-hmm. which is, it ended up being a four-hour detour. Our internet is not working, so we've literally got the malways. We've got screenshots of the last time we could get onto the Vic Roads app saying which roads were closed. If anyone listening to this finds himself in that position, trying to take a moment to yourself to recover, like that was quite a stressful situation. And I think it's about trying to find relatable stories because at that point it was about three or four days into flood coverage. Up there you can feel the stress of people, but I was kind of in the back of my mind thinking, how do we keep this on the national conversation. The big issue was that flood levee, which had been built literally halfway down a residential street. Residents on one side were going to be completely fine. This this wall would protect them. Residents on the other were expecting like two metres of water to come into their house. Yeah, it's it's tricky. But I haven't reported from conflict zones, so I don't, I don't have experience of that. But in natural disasters, I think, yeah, just trying to find relatable stories. Well, I think especially as Australian journalists, that's more likely what we're going to be yeah, facing yeah, yeah. is of natural disasters. Yeah. What is your research process before you get there? The tricky thing about natural disasters is things change a lot. In a perfect world, you do as much research as you can. In a practical world, you have very little time to do that. You're just there, you're making decisions. I hadn't been to Echuca for like 10 years when I went there. So you're trying to understand like why this part of the Murray is going to flood and this part isn't. There's only so much research you can do, but journalism is about finding someone else who knows. There's actually no point me knowing the entire 
flood warning plan for Echuca. I need to know the key points and I need to find people who will react to that. I think you can maybe be worried about how much preparation you do, but it's just about getting there and doing it. That's journalism. That should be the catchphrase. What were the major issues that became apparent to you as you reported from the scene and as the floods worsened? In Echuca, the dirt wall that had been built was becoming a political issue. I went to a place called Barma. It's just a tiny, gorgeous, gorgeous town and they were going to be inundated as well and we were the only ones there at that point. I spoke to someone at the local general store and they were like, yeah, we're expecting about a metre of water. I said, see that place across from the general store? It just looked like an open section of land, like a riverbank. I was like, what's that? They're like, oh, that's that's the old mission. I was like, do people still live there? They were like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, why can't I see any sandbags? So eventually we got permission to go there. A local elder there was like, we haven't really had very much help. We were told to leave, but this was a historical mission and there was really not as much protection as they would like from authorities and they were really generous with their time, actually. What did experiencing these events firsthand teach you? That floods are actually really scary. I always knew that bushfires were scary, but there's nothing like still water in the middle of nowhere and just noticing it slowly rising and I think reporters find themselves in situations they didn't think they would have in Mallacoota in was it 2019 2020 bushfires when things were really kicking off there journalists everyone just had to run into the water because it was so dangerous I remember watching a feed coming back through one of the cameraman's cameras and there was the reporter with lots of other reporters I knew all of a sudden the picture went black but we could still hear them we were like what's going on and they were like you don't understand there's like the biggest ash cloud we've ever seen right over the top of us I was watching it from the comfort of a newsroom in Melbourne and I was panicking it's quite a famous incident that happened those bushfires were quite scary for communities obviously and I think a little bit confronting for journalists as well do you have any advice for journalists who are faced with oh my gosh suddenly I'm out of my element reporting on something wild and crazy like to the journalists that are really just dropped into that what is your advice there's lots of places to go to. Most employers have employee assistance programs. There's also the DART Centre for Journalism. I also think just debriefing with colleagues can go a really long way. I was so lucky I was with a photographer I really get along with in the floods. So we'd see something crazy and we'd be like, what the hell was that? Just talking it over sometimes and acknowledging that you've just gone through something crazy. that is rapidly changing, expanding and at our fingertips, there is often a pressure to constantly churn out stories, sometimes leading to inaccurate reporting. How do you navigate the modern news cycle? I forgot to say the disclaimer at the start that none of this is the opinion of my past or former employer. But with that very boring disclaimer aside, actually something that I really value with AAP is accuracy over speed. We're a newswire service, so you have to be really fast because other people are, are basing their reports on what you're saying. The worst thing you could do is get it wrong first. So it's just sometimes taking a breath and just reading over what you've written or what you're about to broadcast before actually doing it making sure you've attributed something if something's quite contentious which is very boring and very back to basics but really saves you a lot of trouble in the future. I think it's something that we often forget about especially in modern news reporting social media you know I saw this thing on TikTok and therefore it's fact with those new additions into what journalism is there's conflicts how do you navigate the new influx of the modern version of journalism? I think it's just being really conscious about your role. You never want to perpetuate something that's incorrect. 
in general for the profession that's bad but for you personally it's really bad I'm always wary of people like live tweeting things because stories can change quite quickly and you need to have both sides in there or often several voices you need to have all the details so just being aware of that yeah I've been finding myself recently second guessing every single source as well like I would see something on TikTok or I would read something on Twitter and I would go to bring it up in conversation with my friends but then I would be like wait but I don't know where this comes from do you find that's a thing for you as well yeah it's really tricky particularly with the lack of verification on x so much of what we do is where it comes from but I think that's part of a broader conversation of how do we engage people into trusting mainstream media and and media literacy always attributing it back because you never want to get in trouble for what you're reporting but also it's inevitable like it's breaking news in the same way that things go to air that are incorrect with incorrect straps or something like it's the nature of the game but once you realize there's a mistake own it change it and be clear about that i was watching media watch earlier and the whole britney higgins versus bruce lerman case media watch popped up the screen cap where they were showing how different print newspapers were reporting on the case and something that immediately grabbed my attention was how catchy the headlines in these newspapers were so have you noticed a similar trend in print versus online where headlines are sensationalized more over one or the other i can't comment on that case specifically i think it's no secret that clickbait works keeping that in mind but trying to be accurate and there are different ways of looking at a story it must be very difficult for some people to find that balance of like something I want to click on and I'm interested in yet keeping the accuracy but the accuracy has got to take over and I would say to any young people who are quite concerned about their work being changed or a particular angle like bring it up with your manager because the worst thing for you to do is say yes and then it gets broadcast and it's wrong or you end up on media watch yeah all that's our, all our worst nightmare <laughs> it's happened to people that i i know actually and it is also my worst nightmare looking back on your work with seven you worked as a 6 p.m line producer 4 p.m bulletin ep and when the pandemic hit covid dominated the headlines as well as having to live through lockdowns, the work-from-home orders, you would have had your finger constantly on the pulse of recent case numbers, sudden lockdowns and all we went through. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and how that shaped you as a journalist? Yeah, it was pretty hectic. You'd wake up in the morning and I'd consume 90 minutes of COVID news before I got to work. Then I'd get to work at 9 o'clock, you'd finish at 7, you'd get home and, and during the first one I was living at home. So I'd get home to my parents and they just want to talk about everything that happened that day. And then I'd speak to my brother and he was the same. He was like, just give me the snapshot version. And I realised I was spending like more than 12 hours a day thinking about the pandemic. And But that's not just limited to journalists, right? That's anyone who worked in health or pretty much anything. But I realised it was not healthy for me after a while. So it was really hard to switch off. But eventually I became really clear like, no, I am not checking my phone after seven or I'm not checking my phone on my day off. And that was a huge help actually. But also it was kind of crazy because for the first time in my life, we were living through history. I felt that too. I think being journalists at that time, there was something exciting about it because ultimately we knew somehow it was gonna end and somehow we'd get out and there would be a time where we look back on it and it's a weird, wacky thing that we went through. You know, it's gonna be in the history books. And as horrendous as the pandemic was, for so many reasons like it was history and it was quite significant there were epidemiologists and infectious diseases experts who were like we never thought we would see a pandemic I remember a reporter turned around to me who was at 9-11 in New York and he was like 
you'll be telling your grandchildren about this in the way that I'm going to tell my grandchildren about being in New York on 9-11. And I was like, what are you talking about? But he's right. Like, it was quite significant. It was pretty full on, but it was a massive honour at the same time too. Do you think that kind of obsession, that little bubble that you were kind of living in, do you think that's something that journalists now struggle with, even though we're not in a pandemic, that kind of bubble of news and... Constantly, constantly having to think yeah. about what's going on Being in the news cycle. In. How how do you manage that? Did you learn how to do that from this experience? Yeah, definitely. I don't think it's unique to journalism, I think. I've got friends in many other industries, like one of my friends who's a lawyer has massive issues switching off. Same with friends in medicine and science. And I just think it's about recognising that if you're on a path to burnout, like you need to stop it. Whether that's having really strict rules about checking your phone or taking breaks that's something that's not really spoken about I think because particularly at the start of your career it's just about getting that first job and then like sticking it out doing the hard yards getting the job that you want but someone said to me journalism is a marathon not a sprint and it churns through people so being really aware of your personal tolerance I really benefit from having like a three or four week break a year and I'm lucky that I've got the leave and the ability to do that some people can't do that they're like mate I need a break like every three months like I need a week off and just like understanding your tolerance I know it's not a very sexy topic of conversation (laughs) but it's super important to know what your limits are Absolutely. Oh, definitely. You mentioned earlier, before the show started, <laughs> you mentioned earlier that medical reporting was something that interested you. Was the pandemic the origin of that? Yeah, definitely, definitely. It was the first time that I'd been exposed to medical news on the reg, but also understanding that. So there's the phrase like, it's an art, not a science, but understanding science is not a definite thing. And understanding there's like nuances and, and ways in that. And it's quite complicated. I think that's the thing the pandemic showed me is medical news is really, really hard to infiltrate. I quite enjoy getting into it and explaining like, here's what's going on. Here's what you need to know. And yeah, the pandemic was a massive part of that. What about you guys? Like, did it change how you think about things? Oh, 100%. Like, I'm more plugged in now than I was before the pandemic. I mean, I can imagine this for you being in the newsroom itself, but I remember watching the counter for the cases go up, like, second by second, hour by hour, and I was, like, just there all the time. Mm. I was very much plugged into it. I was a student at the time, and I remember first that feeling of like this is history and that's exciting but then also getting a little mad that I I wasn't able to be a part of it because I was a student so I was really just all my uni assignments were about COVID and that sucked and then you know uni was all about being in lockdown as well like they kept going in and out and it was online and then it wasn't and it was very confusing but I just remember thinking that what else would I be doing with my time at least I get to Janik said, at least I get to be in the on the field, kicking a goal, having my say, putting my voice out there. We were starting to hear from a younger generation as well during COVID. We were really starting to get our voice. And so, yeah, I felt that I was able to tell quite a few stories. My mom was a travel agent and so she lost her job pretty quickly. Oh, gosh. She ended up starting her own business and took the time to really like do well in the she's doing right now which is great but I remember watching that fall and that was something where I was like so heartbroken because of what she loved and it was put to a stop but for me it was the opposite it almost got more exciting because there were so many stories to tell and I ended up telling her story and that was something that brought me some real joy was like yes what she's going through is hard but now I get to put a voice to it COVID almost helped me fall in love with storytelling in a way that it was a lot slower so I was able to enjoy it and there were people who wanted to tell their stories at the time I know what you mean like 
in a weird way during the pandemic I have to preface this with the lockdowns were horrible Mm -hmm. for many people but you know authorities said it was necessary at the time but in terms of actual journalism like I loved watching the stories of when we were going into lockdown or out of lockdown because you got to hear from everyone for the first time in a really long time it wasn't just like politician lobby group you know special interest group it was like you know the local hairdresser the local florist it was actually speaking to real people and I I hope that that's something that I carry with me like actually speaking to people affected makes your coverage way better yeah I think that's definitely like changed as well what we're seeing in journalism I feel like we are seeing a lot of like smaller voices which I think is really important this kind of flows perfectly into the next topic all of us sitting around the table identify as women and it's so exciting to me that we're all working in this industry and female voices are being heard as in times not too long ago it was a massive fight and I thank the women who paved the way before do you think that the fight is done or is there more work to do are we hearing enough stories from women diverse faces POC queer voices okay the short version is more can always be done the longer version is like what are we talking about are we talking about like experts that you go to because often I found myself in certain areas like the voices that you go to are heterosexual men but that's not because you're not seeking out other voices it's your time pressure they happen to be the leading voices in the industry so being aware of that and always trying to accurately represent what an industry is feeling like if we're talking about like business leaders or something because I'm daily news like I'm not telling long-form stories that expert is kind of my touch point I suppose and I think that you can always do better but also sometimes you only have an hour to do a story and you only have 400 words and it's just about getting the thing done and yeah as you said women in the media tend to look like me they're young white straight from the city which is not really cool like being aware of that is something I think is actually the first step because not a lot of people are entirely cognizant of like how you tell more diverse stories than that on that like what you spoke of i was trying to write a pitch for someone or for something and i was trying to specifically find female scientists like article published recently by female scientists it took me two hours to just find one prominent female like astrophysicist who has published in her field yeah it's upsetting being aware of it i think is the first step and then like you've got your contact book right so making note of when there's great talent and we don't hear enough from them like that's probably worthwhile like in science maybe it's about developing good relationships with university PR teams being like I'm looking for a woman in astrophysics like I know this is an area dominated by men but I just really need to speak to a woman in this story like they'll they'll try and facilitate that I a couple of years ago interviewed a really prominent campaigner against domestic violence who is a man his sister was murdered in and it was a horrible big story but at the time he was like this was a big story but it was because of his identity he's quite a famous person when I was interviewing him a couple of years ago he's like when this happened to my sister like there were no young women interviewing me about this this has entirely changed like this wasn't a topic of conversation it was about the actual crime that happened not the broader picture of violence against women so things change over time and some of that is just natural one thing that's really come to my mind is like trans issues wasn't spoken about when I was at uni as much as it is now and just showing compassion in that I think is something that we can all keep in mind you brought a piece in for us, a piece that you really love. The Body in Room 348 by Mark Bowden for Vanity Fair. 
This is where Greg was on the evening of Wednesday, September 15, 2010, in room 348 of the MCM Elegant Hotel in Beaumont, Texas, lounging, smoking, snacking on a Reese Crisp Crunchy Bar, sipping root beer, and watching Iron Man 2. He missed the ending. Mark goes on to write, Weeks went by, months went by. Detective Apple worked any theory he could imagine. He considered the possibility that Susie has had her husband killed. He considered Michael Silkin, Greg's brother and partner. There was nothing that even hinted at either person. Who doesn't love a mystery solved? It creates order from disorder, solves our ache for moral balance, and unsolved mystery is like a stone in your shoe. That is where the case of the body in room 348 was by the end of 2010. Wonderful piece, by the way. I was like holding it on. It reads like a Agatha Christie whodunit. I love a whodunit. If a friend was to turn to you and say, oh, what should I read? This is what came to your mind. How would you describe it to your friend? This piece of journalism is like watching a movie play out in your own head. And it's an unfolding mystery that has a satisfying ending, which you don't always get in true crime, actually. The thing I really like about this piece is that for the first maybe 20% or so, it's a mystery. It's a what happened. But actually the way that the journalist plays it is you think that he's had a heart attack, the victim's had a heart attack, and then he introduces the mystery of this person has the most horrific injuries, like internal injuries, with no external injuries whatsoever, no clue how or why this person died. The thing I really love about it is it's really respectful to him too because this was obviously a really big case at the time and I think sometimes what happens to victims can get lost in the gruesomeness or the peculiarity of how they die but this, I think, painted a really nice picture of this person and, you know, his wife is included in that, you understand a bit about his hobbies but it's also got, you know, his little peculiarities about the way that he sets out his hotel room. So it's it's just a great read, to be honest. And the first article that I was like, I want to write like that. Those stories happen in Melbourne. I'm doing some work with some younger journalists and they're like, I can't wait to go to New York and tell the big stories and maybe it'll have an Australian perspective, maybe it won't. And I'm like, cool, how much work have you done here? And they're like, oh, it doesn't really appeal to me. But if you walk into the Supreme Court, which you can do yeah. <laughs> any day, you will find the most crazy stories happening and they're tragic and there's often a lot to be said about the rest of society. And so although this is an American piece, there's pieces like that everywhere around Australia. Telling Australian stories is vitally important. Absolutely. We need like a bustling industry here. I think a great example of that is Phoebe's Fall by Richard Barker. Great like piece yeah, great of young. Melbourne great journalism, young. right? St Kilda Road. That's literally down the road. Other than being an incredible story what specifically stands out as like this being a piece of good journalism do you know the thing that immediately comes to mind is that the writer has clearly spent a lot of time with the victim's wife with the investigators with everyone involved yet he doesn't insert himself until the very end which i find so just satisfying because i'm reading this story i actually don't care what the journalist thinks like you're there to report don't make it about you. Also, it's hard to put yourself into the story if the journalist has already done that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's hard as an audience member to relate. So I really like that because it's told in almost a literary non-fiction way. It's really not about you and only certain people can pull that off and do it well. Most people just look self-indulgent, to be honest. With the right circumstances, the right story, the right journalist... 
that I think it's a tool that's used too often and often by celebrities. It's interesting though because uh, the story came to be because of the writer itself, right? Like the, he mentions that some of Susie's friend has read an article. Susie came in contact with the detective and it's just incredible what journalism can do. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. Power of yeah. storytelling. Power of storytelling. That brings us to the last question. Where do you think the future of journalism is going? That's a really big question. There are people doing PhDs on this topic who probably haven't come to a concrete answer. We're going to solve it right here, right, right. now. <laughs> right now. I think it's a bit more on demand. Like, I think TV, maybe radio, needs to find a less structured format, but there's still benefits to that. I think there's going to be changes. AI is going to be huge. And balancing that efficiency with newsworthiness or news sense. I don't think like Elon Musk, I don't think robots and AI is going to take over the world. So it's about finding a way for that to suit you. Look, maybe you look at it as a way of, yes, journalism jobs are going to be going, but like it frees up time to do other stuff. Like in the same way that my mum's a public servant and she speaks about when she started in the public service, you know, there were full typing pools of women who were secretaries, but then they were deployed and used in other areas of the service, you know, which is quite scary for the individual, but like acknowledging this is going to happen, like we actually have no choice, like it's, it's going to come. I'm curious to know what's the future for you. I don't know. That's exciting. <laughs> Um, also terrifying, just a little bit. <laughs> Thanks. This discussion plays out in my head quite a bit. <laughs> We're like the angel and the devil on your shoulder. Let's voice it out. Let's therapy. Let's go. <laughs> to be honest, I have made the decision to stay in the industry, which I know it probably seems a bit different sitting on your side of the table, like coming out of uni, like everyone's like, oh, what's my first job? This is so exciting. But a couple of years down the track, lots of people you go to uni with face decisions of like caring responsibilities, whether they become a parent or like simply money to pay the rent or if they want to contribute to society in another way. I've decided I want to stay in the industry. So accepting that things like AI are going to change, but also it's okay if people don't make that choice as well. And I would just, you know, say to people who... Look, maybe they can relate to this, maybe they can't. But whatever choices your friends make, like, that's good for them. Please don't, you know, cast any shade on them or yeah. anything like that. Yeah, I, I really feel that because, like, I started to work in regional news and a lot of people were like, you're moving to Bendigo? What are you doing? You live in Brunswick. Like, you live the dream. You have your, I lived in a one-bedroom in Brunswick. It was sick. Are they non-media people, though? I think my reaction was a little bit similar. <laughs> But then I was very supportive. Then you were very supportive. Yeah. Because I was moving for a job. But yeah, it's one of those things where you kind of just got to make the moves that are right for you. And sometimes they look crazy. Like, for example, like you went from broadcast to print. So that was a massive jump. Like, what was the reaction from people when, when you did that? Surprise. People don't really do that. <laughs> Everyone was like, what? Why? But it was simply like I just wanted to try something else. I'd been in tabloid TV for five years. I loved it. I loved all of it except you know some of the deep dark days of lockdown they were pretty big days but I just got to a point where I was like I need to try something else and just put myself out of my comfort zone for a little while and it's paid off for me I love it I love it so much yeah what would be your advice to you know yourself pondering that choice to to move out of broadcast what would you say to yourself now that you're in print and loving it 
I think you need to trust your instincts and sometimes do things that are a bit scary, which may sound like a contradiction, but I think both come into play. I think being open to new opportunities is a great idea and not having preconceived notions about what a particular job will be. For people starting out in the industry, it's just taking whatever opportunity comes along because they're really difficult to find. And yeah, going regional for some people might seem crazy, but for some people like for, for commercial TV, that is the pathway and sussing out what the pathway is for you because there's many ways into the industry but in some ways there are some trodden paths that you just got to tread where do you see journalism going it's very uncomfortable to be asked questions isn't it i'm getting a real insight into what i do to other people every day it's us, us. it's <laughs> us baby but it's, it's exciting there are a lot of really young motivated people i think there are a lot of people our age who are becoming a lot more politically minded which is really interesting so i feel like we'll get to see a world where that's maybe a little less like for the smart elites and then for kind of everybody i think ai is a really great tool we use ai to edit these episodes i think there are some really exciting tools that are also coming up but i think you're right about on demand things like podcasts things like youtube videos iview all those kind of things are really leaning in that on demand way but there's something classic about you know putting on the morning news it's, it's really interesting that you bring up political like politicalization are you talking about journalists are you talking about the people you're covering are you talking about expectations from the audience or all three i think just generally like society and our generation out in society is more aware of what especially post-covid the powers that our political leaders have over us and how we can impact that and change that you know we're seeing more protests that's really exciting that's you know coming from a younger generation a lot of student protests which is great Adding on to the political protest, though, I do think that we are a little bit more aware of like fake news as well. Like we're just more aware of being accurate. And I think that that's something that we're going to see in the next few years, whether it be with the help of AI, without the help of AI. We are going to tackle that. We are going to tackle like we're going to get it right at least. Yeah, well, fact checking is really becoming a part of journalism. It's becoming one of the the main mediums and I think that's a really exciting world as well that is quite new we get to you know pull people out I love to pull people out <laughs> yeah that's yeah does that answer your question yeah I think so <laughs> well we've discussed the state of the fourth estate thanks so much for joining us today Rachel thank you so much for having me I really enjoyed it oh I'm glad yay thank you The State of the Fourth Estate podcast is co-produced by Sarah Mishra and Taylor Oates. Music by Wessa, branding by Lee Barkey and social content by Yara Muna.